The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. The nature of human trafficking means it is almost impossible to truly understand the scale of the issue. The International Labour Organization, or the ILO, tells us that there are around 40 million victims of human trafficking annually, and that for every 1,000 people, there are 5.4 who are victims of modern slavery. 71% of trafficking victims are women and girls, and 75% of all trafficked people are aged over 18, meaning that 10 million are children. Trafficking in persons is insidious. It's an issue that has no borders. Trafficking occurs in every country around the world. However, the vast majority of trafficking is domestic and regional. The majority of human trafficking victims are involved in forced labour, and 4 million of the children trafficked each year are trafficked for domestic servitude or to work in the manufacturing or agriculture sectors. Trafficking has been getting a lot of attention recently, specifically child sex trafficking. Subsequently, the spotlight has shone on organisations working to rescue children from these situations. While on the surface, this seems like the right response, it's a lot more complicated than that. Rescuing children from sex trafficking is complex, layered, and requires a holistic approach that not only works on prevention and aftercare, but challenges the systems and structures that allow child sex trafficking to proliferate. I invited feminist, teacher, and survivor of human trafficking, Sophie Otiende, to talk about her work supporting and advocating for survivors. We take a deep dive into the raid and rescue model used by many organizations working on child sex trafficking and discuss the challenges in supporting survivors. Sophie works for an organization called Raising Awareness Against Human Trafficking, or HEART, in Kenya, and it's the only organization in Kenya focusing exclusively on counter-trafficking work. She is responsible for setting up the systems of the protection department within HEART and coordinating support given to survivors of trafficking. The protection department assists an average of 200 survivors annually and also has a shelter dedicated to young girls between the age of 6 and 18 that have gone through human trafficking. Sophie is passionate about women, specifically survivors, and also about the power of storytelling in ensuring that their healing and empowerment occurs. She is the author of three manuals focusing on human trafficking and protection of survivors. Welcome to the Good Problem podcast, Sophie. Thank you. (laughs) Sophie, first of all, I'm going to ask you a question I ask all my guests. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? I think for me, doing good or being good goes back to authenticity. One, I think about authenticity and I think about values. And I think about values that basically matter to me and also protect the people around me and ensure that everyone is also their authentic self. So for me, good is the ability for all of us to actually be ourselves and be in peace and allowing each other to actually live in harmony. So for me, that would be doing good is me trying to get to that utopia where all of us are authentic and are living with each other in harmony. Do you think doing good is something that uh, you consider as part of your work or is it something you express every day in your daily life? I think especially because of the industry I am in, people don't know how to separate the two. 
in development. People don't know how to separate the two because people see development as doing good and being good. And ultimately that if you are in development, you are a good person because you are doing good things. And I tend to disagree with that. I think being good is an expression of self and what you do at work could be great, but at the end of the day, you could still be a really shitty person. So for me, it's more about being, uh, how you are consistently expressing who you are continuously, and your work is just one of those things. And when I think about the fact that we live in a capitalistic world where essentially people, you're being paid to do your work. So the idea of being paid to do good also doesn't sit quite right with me. Yeah, definitely. I agree with you on that one. Sophie, you work with survivors of trafficking in Kenya. Can you give us an overview of the work that you do and also what the most prevalent forms of trafficking that you see are? I have to say that when we talk about trafficking most of the time, or when we speak about trafficking most of the time, most of the time people think about trafficking as organized crime. And I think it's because of how the media has discussed it and what the discourse generally around trafficking has been, has been around trafficking as organized crime, gangs, kidnapping people and abusing people. And then, you know, police coming or people coming to raid and rescue the person that is there. But I think for in a place like Kenya, the most prevalent forms of trafficking are as a result of just, you know, human rights abuse, abuse of rights of people, you know. So it's neighbors abusing their neighbors' children, it's, you know, it's families mainly abusing their families, their, their, you know, a poor family member. So it's mainly domestic servitude, forced labor, combined with sexual exploitation being the most prevalent form that we see. Of course, we see some sex trafficking in, in some parts of Kenya, but I would say overall, in general, most prevalent would be forced labor. And in terms of people involved in trafficking, is there a, any breakdown of adults versus children in Kenya? Trafficking numbers are so tricky because, first of all, you have a crime that even some experts don't agree on things like definition, don't agree on who's a victim and who isn't, right? So it's it's really difficult to talk about the numbers, but looking at my, my past experience working with HART, the most the highest numbers were mainly children and women. But I say that with a caveat, and I always say it with a caveat, because I say that identification of survivors and identification and provision of services to survivors is really, really designed for women and children. So essentially, I cannot say for certain right now that the reason why those numbers are as they are mostly ha also has to do with the industry itself and the, how the system is set up, that boys and men are not easily identified and gender plays a huge role as to who receives services and who is identified as a survivor or not. So trafficking doesn't exist in a silo. It exists on this world that has, has gender, has racism, has sexuality, has all those other issues. So when I say identification, it's against that background, that all these other things exist and somehow influence whatever we are doing. There's been a lot of increased attention on the issue of child sex trafficking recently. And I'm interested in talking to you about the, the different ways that people and organizations try to tackle the issue of trafficking. So what are the different models that are used by organizations when they're trying to address the issue of trafficking? 
we definitely have the one I mentioned first, the people that look at a sort of do raid and rescue. We have people that do identification. So people who are constantly talking about like identification, like, you know, red flags and basically how you can be able to identify a survivor just by seeing them or by looking at common red flags. We have people that are looking at, you know, support, general support, you know, or providing survivors with trauma-informed care, providing direct needs and all that. And then looking at how they can be integrated back into the community. We have people that are focusing exclusively on working with communities and, you know, providing support to communities and ensuring that communities are responsible for supporting survivors. And of course, we have what recently has become, uh, is also common, is that people who are talking about, you know, uh, how do we make the whole process sustainable and, you know, involving the idea of involving uh, survivors into getting them work or starting uh, social enterprises and involving them and engaging them and all that, there's all that. So there are many ways to go about it. (laughs) Can we talk further about the raid and rescue model? Because I think that's the most prevalent model, particularly when it comes to sex trafficking. And it's the one that gets a lot of attention from the general public and, and media. These organizations in particular seem to have lots of supporters. They get celebrity supporters. Can you break down what the raid and rescue model is? The raid and rescue model is that essentially the people that uh, are providing this support will find out or will get tips or information and then will basically uh, go and sometimes work with the police and essentially raid a place, raid a, uh, raid a place that is holding, uh, you know, survivors and will basically get them out of the situation. So in most cases, it's like people who are out there, like banging doors and taking, literally taking uh, survivors out of the situation of trafficking. It's my understanding that many of these kind of raid and rescue organizations are set up or or run by people with a background in law enforcement. What does that mean for um, the programming or the the kind of approach that they take to this issue? Again, like I'm I'm saying, when you look at trafficking as purely organized crime, uh, which in most cases, law enforcement or people with a law enforcement background usually look at trafficking as mostly, not all, but mostly, we look at trafficking as organized crime and we look at it at, you know, let's get the bad guys, you know, and it's very black and white. It's very, you know, this is the enemy, we are the good guys and we are, and the victim is, the victim, you know, needs to be saved. So there's a dynamic that is already created where everything is so black and white. And for me, the problem is nuance. There's a loss of nuances around the issue that doesn't, in the long term, is not really helpful, you know. Do I think that survivors need to be taken out of the situation? Yes. They need to, we need to encourage for that to be done. But when I think about essentially what the dynamics that are created in the long term is really not beneficial. And then secondly, I come from the background where I believe that trade and rescue should be done by law enforcement. I just think that the only way to standardize it, to have accountability, to be able to do uh, certain things is when 
law enforcement and we can hold someone accountable because we know they're trained we know that they, they we know that their job depends on it you know so for me accountability of the whole process and standardization of the whole process is extremely important and for that reason i believe that raid and rescue should be done by government and should be done by law enforcement and it's my understanding that a lot of raid and rescue at the moment is done by international teams that are not uh, actively part of law enforcement or government. So they're, they're external charities or organizations that are coming in to other countries and conducting raid and rescue. Is that true? Yeah, for, for some, yes. And why do you think that the raid and rescue model gets so much funding and attention? Because we love heroes. We are the generation that has lived, and I say this all the time, we are the generation that has lived with DC movies, with Marvel movies. We are the generation of Iron Man and Superman. And and we are that generation, you know. We are the generation that loves heroes. We love our heroes. We absolutely love them. Like there's no in between. We live in a world where being just a normal average person is not okay. It's really not okay. I mean, you being an average person is not okay. We live in a world of exceptionalism. Like everyone has to be exceptional. We require it of people. We demand it of people. We are constantly wanting to create heroes in every situation so that the responsibility of making the world a better place is not on all of us, it's on specific people who we worship, who we heap praises on, so that we can, the rest of us can be, be absolutely irresponsible in some ways, or some people can feel really bad and can just be like, oh, I can't, you know, it's so-and-so who do it. I mean, think about the Nobel Peace Prize. Think about all those things. I mean, I, I just think because of that, Red and Rescue, of course, it just appeals to what we like at the moment. How do you think white privilege and white saviorism play into that hero narrative? When you think about white saviorism and all that, you can't, you have to think about historically how white people have always approached, uh, you know, have always approached the other people <laughs> or other nations. It's, that's historically white people. And for someone like me who's in development, you see it all the time. You see international organizations, you see people come into your country and no listen to them and know that they know absolutely nothing about your problems but somehow they are considered experts in your problems your own problems problems that you you woke up growing up with you understand you fully understand what your problems are but you have these white people who will be brought to explain to you your problems and to solve them for you and somehow get paid more than you, three, four, five times, sometimes even 10 times more than you, simply because they come from a different country. Development was built on white saviorhood. The whole development industry was built on white saviorhood. The discussion between, I mean, basically, even the way we speak about you know, the North and the South in development, the assumption that the, that, that the North is always teaching the South and the North is always assisting the South, that there's always that general assumption. Like, there's no way the South could be teaching the North. I mean, what, what would we have to teach? So, of course, it, play, it really plays into, it plays into that. And there's also the fact that you know 
people want, don't understand that historical problems and generally problems that are embedded culturally take time to be solved. They take time. Like saying that banging a door and taking that survivor out is what is the only thing that is required. You don't know, like it's, it's not that simple. People want quick answers and it's easy to when for people to give into something like that because they're instant results. Someone can instantly say, you know, 30 people were taken out of slavery. And the images that we have shown, the chains and everything, the chains have been released. And now I'll speak this as, as a survivor. You being taken out of a situation of, of abuse, it's such a small part of your process of healing. I mean, I've been out of my situation. I left my situation when I was 13. I've been out for more than 20 years. And some of the scars that I'm dealing with 20 years later, if there was a person that rescued me that was getting any credit for, I would be so mad because, you know, there's this whole 20 years of healing that no one wants to talk about. No one wants to talk about the parts that are difficult, the parts of our culture that we have to change, you know that require all of us to participate. It's easy to do rest. It's easy to think about someone banging and opening and that's it and forget about, you know, that issue. But that survivor is going to need, need to recover. That survivor is going to need to go back into a community. That survivor is going to struggle with education, is going to struggle with getting work. That survivor is going to, figure, to, to, to face stigma. No one wants to talk about that. And all those, those are the areas where we need all of us. No hero is coming to fight stigma for us. No hero is coming to fight racism on, on, on our behalf. We kind of have to just stop being racist. You know, all of us have to look deep inside and just fix it. So I, I think we like certain models because then they don't hold us accountable because it means that fewer people have to do anything. So what does happen after one of these teams flies in? What happens when they leave the country? One of the things is that, that people don't also understand is expectations. So I'm like, let's say I am a service provider, a local service provider. And this client has been rescued by, you know, white people from a situation. Their expectations of what they will receive as services become extremely high. Because the reality is that as soon as people see white people in any situation, and that's the truth, they imagine there's a lot of money to be given, to be shared, to be wasted, all that. So as a service provider, I can't give what I have because they're they already assuming that I have this money that I was given by these people for them. It, puts, it makes my work three, four times harder because now I can't manage expectations for that survivor. And then when now we actually get into, into providing services, nothing is ever enough. Even for that survivor, nothing is ever enough because there's an expectation that comes with doing it that way. It's so hard, <laughs> like it's, later on, it's so hard to provide, to even provide someone just with basic services because they want more. And then sometimes you have these rates being done and people haven't even considered like, I'm saying long-term support. Who's going to provide that long-term support? Maybe you go and do a raid and you rescue even 50 people, yeah. Who's going to take care of them for the next? And most survivors will need two, three, four years of care. And is this funded by these organizations when they come in and rescue? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. 
uh, sometimes it's they feel their responsibility is just to refer. What about the local authorities that often work in collaboration with these these raid and rescue groups? The question is why is it easy to do it here and not easy to do it in the West? That's the first question. Why is it easy to do it here and not easy to do it in, the, in their own countries? And the reality is because here, we don't have, in the police force, we don't have enough police to even actually do these things. And what like local activists and people like me and everyone is doing is we are constantly trying to hold our government accountable. We are saying the government should actually hire more police officers, should train more police officers, should make sure police officers are equipped to do this. So when you come and do this, you basically erase all the work that we've been doing because you are you are coming to, you know, it's a temporary solution for a much bigger problem that needs to be fixed because each country should be able to have enough, you know, enough people to take care of its own citizens. We shouldn't have to rely on, you know, on good Samaritans to come and do raid and rescue. I don't think that that's that's sustainable and I don't think that that's something that should be happening. So of course it's just preying on weak systems, corruption and every, every other thing that goes on in countries like ours. So effectively the money that is spent or raised and spent in these raid and rescue operations could be better spent supporting, you know, building or capacity building of judicial systems and police forces in countries where this is a significant issue. Yeah. And I think, to be honest, I think most of the raid and rescue people, it's it's really, really well intended. It's really, really well intended. And some of the, the, the people I've met are exceptionally, you know, uh, good in the work that they do. And if that was spent on training, you know, really, really supporting and working with governments to fix the system, I honestly think that would be more effective and more sustainable. And it's what most of us actually want. It means that then the police can be able to do raid raids after you are gone. One aspect that it's not talked about very often is what happens to the children when they're present when a raid occurs, a raid and rescue occurs? Okay, I haven't worked directly with children that, you know, have gone through something like that, but I've worked with adults that have gone through something like that. And I always say trauma is cultural. How people express trauma and how they respond, it's very, very cultural. And it's extremely important that when you know, someone, the people that are taking care of you to sort of understand you. And I think that for those groups, that's what they miss. It's someone with a cultural background is much more helpful in that situation than someone without, you know. They're able to see, identify things that other people just can't be able to identify in that situation. And also just to make someone feel comfortable. I've been seeing for some some of those children or for some of those adults in some situation, it's the first time they're seeing a white person. For real, like it's the first time. You can imagine now they have to deal with everything and then they also have to deal with, okay, who are these people? What are they doing? And then in that moment, they have to trust people who are completely foreign to them. Their recovery, their next steps are this dictated upon them trusting someone who sometimes who they don't even understand what that person is saying. So in some cases, even language is an issue. What responsibility to these organizations that are conducting rescues have towards ensuring that survivors receive the kind of care that they need, that's culturally appropriate, that uh, addresses their specific context and their specific trauma that helps with uh, rehabilitation or reintegration to family? 
what responsibility do they have for making sure that happens? I think it's it's not a legal responsibility. And I always say there's a difference between a legal and an ethical responsibility. There isn't a legal responsibility, there's an ethical responsibility. So that means that you kind of are depending on someone to be ethical in that they care enough to do those things. And to be fair, there are some organizations that are quite keen on that, that will first of all think about those things and then do it. But some that don't, you know, there's no legal responsibility. And every anyone who knows me knows that I have been, I think my one cry for this movement has been standards, standards, standards. Standards of care need to be thought about, need to be considered consistently, you know, by everyone who's working with survivors. And the reality is that Globally, and I'm not even talking about this, globally, most of the work that is done in provision of care is dependent on people's goodwill. Like there isn't a legal responsibility as to what as a survivor, what you receive. Most survivors all over the world right now are fighting to hold governments accountable, service providers accountable for the quality of care that they receive. Because there isn't a predetermined, like, you know, this is the bare minimum that you can receive. It's at the end of the day, you have it so bad, we are asking you, we are saving you, you should be grateful. So what is the quality of care like for many survivors? It's not consistent. You are not sure of the quality you're going to receive. That's one. And I say this speaking both, you're not sure of the quality of service you're going to receive, whether you're receiving it from government or you're receiving it from from an NGO that is working. Uh, It's inconsistent. Um, Most of the services are dependent on NGOs that are running projects. So it means that if they don't have money, you you won't receive the services. If they have money, you you will. It's not long-term. So it uh, basically, most of the organizations provide care for two to three years. And any survivor, most of the research out there says that most survivors actively start dealing with their trauma after four or five years, three, four years. So there's such a huge gap in long-term support. So there is no money for long-term support. Most survivors don't get to have a say in like the care that they get, you know, like to choose this is what I want, you know, this is what I don't want. That goes back to that idea that you've been rescued, therefore you should be grateful for whatever care it is that you are offered or receive. Let's talk about recovery centers or shelters. I've heard you talk publicly before about uh, situations where donors want to visit survivors or hear their stories. First of all, why do you think volunteers or donors want to come and visit these places? And is it okay? I don't know why you would want to come and visit, you know, survivors in a shelter. I think we've institutionalized pity in development. The more pity you can sell, the more money you can be able to get, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, it's, that's just the reality. It's sad to see it, but it is the reality. The more pity you can be able to sell, the more money you can. And I think by going to these places, we feel a little bit better about our lives. You know, and you can hear when people talk about this, uh, this visits to shelters and everything, or they tell you, oh, I went and I saw these girls and I had their stories, and it made me consider all the privileges I have. I mean, you needed that. And that's the question I keep asking. You really needed that. You needed to see another human being in a worse situation than you, to be grateful of your privileges, to recognize your privileges. You don't just do it. It's not something that you just wake up in the morning and reflect 
and be like, okay, I have this, this, and this, these are the facts out there in the world, and I should be grateful. You need to see another child who has been raped, abused, to feel that. I, I don't even, I've never even understood the implications of that. Like, if you really ask people, like, why is this necessary? No one gives you a good answer. No one gives you a good answer why, why it's necessary. It's so uncomfortable. I've run a shelter. Children who are going through trauma don't want strangers into their home. They don't. It's rude. Can you imagine you having going through a bad day and feeling really terrible and then your friend bringing other friends to come and look at you and see how terrible you feel in your own home? How would that feel? And the only reason why it's acceptable to visit shelters and treat survivors of trafficking the way we do is because we don't see them as people. That's the reality. If we saw them as people, it would be absolutely unacceptable to do it. And the reality is that when people talk about survivors of abuse or survivors of oppression in any way, they speak about them as other people. That's the reason why the quality of service, the way we treat them, we do it differently than how we would treat ourselves. Because that's not how we would treat ourselves. What do you think of this fascination with hearing the stories of survivors or survivors having to tell their stories as part of fundraising or social enterprise activities? It's a lack of empathy. We have so much information that we've lost. Like if I hear, and half the time I'm always saying it, if I, I don't need to hear details, if I just hear someone was raped, it's already awful. It's already a bad story at that level. I don't need to know that person, to see that person, and for that person to tell me, to narrate the story step by step, for it to feel bad. For me, it's just we've gotten to a place where we've accepted that not having empathy, basic human empathy is acceptable. I could probably tell you like 10 stories wrapped up in one already. It's the same thing. Someone is lied to, they are raped. What do you want to know? How many times someone was raped? How is that beneficial to you? You know, what do you want to know? Like how, how is that graphic image helpful to your need to assist? You should just know that this is terrible. I mean, aren't we, don't we all agree that it's terrible? You need five, six people to come and convince you. For me, the way the development world and the way the aid industry has been set up, no respect whatsoever for the people that have been abused. No respect, no consideration, no empathy, nothing. No, there's definitely criticisms around the re-exploitation of survivors in terms of being, you know, required to tell their stories in order to raise money for their own care or to engage in producing, you know, products and services, you know, in cafes where you've got survivors of trafficking and that's a marketing tool used to get customers to come to the cafe and everybody knows that the people working there are survivors of trafficking. I've been to one of these cafes before I knew better and I sat next to a table of people. They were foreigners and they were asking the woman serving them to tell them her particular story of trafficking. And I just thought to myself, how many times has this woman been asked to share what is likely a very, very traumatic experience for her? And how many times is she being re-victimized over and over again because she's working in this cafe that's advertised as a rehabilitation retraining center for survivors? And what choice does she have other than to work here? In that moment, ask yourself, because for me, one of the things, as someone asked me what is my definition of freedom once, 
And I said, my definition of freedom has to do with choice, someone having choices, consistently increasing someone's choices. And you have to ask yourself, as you are saying, that survivor, how many choices does she have in that moment? Yet someone will say that she's in a place of freedom. How many choices does she have? The only way we get better is by constantly questioning ourselves, constantly questioning our motives, and constantly questioning why we do the things that we do. Who does it truly benefit? If you have to tell people that these are survivors for people to buy that, to buy that coffee or that cake or that bread, then even at a business standpoint, why shouldn't people just buy a service because it's actually good? Do you think a lot of this is driven by the, the development model or push for sustainability in all projects everywhere? I was running a shelter and people consistently asked me, how is your shelter sustainable? I always used to get confused. Like, what do you want me to do? How do I make basic services sustainable and my answer was always the same the only way this becomes sustainable is if the government one day wakes up and pays for it according to me that's the only right answer because i don't think the idea again living in a capitalistic uh, society that is constantly looking at return on investment You can't get return on investment when you're giving people justice. There's nothing like that. There's no return on investment when you're doing (laughs) justice work. So no, it can't be sustainable as you want it to be because these people are abused. Someone has to pick up the bill. Someone has to. You might talk about it being sustainable, but what it just means is that this bill becomes somebody else's bill. Yeah, yeah. And it's NGOs that are picking up the bill at this point. Yeah, it's NGOs that are picking up the bill at this point. If we decide and start doing even which some of the things that people suggested, or can they do bid work and produce X, Y, Z? I'd like, maybe they can. If they want to do it in their leisure time, yes, they can do it. But the reality is where it is so difficult to be ethical in those situations. And you've highlighted the whole issue of the power dynamics involved. That's one. Two, most survivors would want to go back to their communities. We were running a short-term shelter. So what do I do? Do I keep those survivors because, you know, I have a jewelry order from the U.S.? And they have to finish it. What would be the difference between me and the person that was abusing them if I have to make them work for basic needs? Absolutely. I mean, that, that's a criticism that's often leveled at the, the, what you've called the freedom business, the, the business of, of freedom from trafficking is that where does choice come into this? How long do you stay in a, in a shelter for do you have a choice? Is there any other option for you to go home to your community, to a different shelter? Where's your recourse if you don't like the conditions or the way you're treated within that shelter? This is why, again, I go back to accountability. You are even going too far by saying, what if I don't want or what if I'm not being treated? The question is, what is being treated well in the first place? What is the definition of proper care? And then if we have a definition of proper care, then we definitely have an accountability process, right? And there's someone that people can run to and they're not treated well. And it means that the system also educates survivors about what is being treated well. Because in most cases, NGOs and everyone providing support expect survivors to compare what they're receiving with the abusive situation, which I find very weird. Of course, every anything is going to be better than where they came from. So we can't clap for ourselves for being better than not abusing them. 
you know, because that's that's like saying, I don't know, that abusing them is the normal and then not abusing them is what is great. So I don't even understand how people, like we think about these things, but essentially uh, for me, ideally, every organization should have an independent way that survivors can complain that they are not in control of and survivors should know about it. I mean, we see this in the in the child protection sector and, you know, I've worked in alternative care and a lot of countries now have minimum standards for the care of children in an institutional environment. Are there minimum standards for care of survivors if they are not children? Not in many, they're not in my country and not in many countries. There isn't a defined minimum standards of care. Uh, like right now, I know that there is a survivor in the UK actually suing the UK government for data, you know, and data protection, because essentially when the person, when someone enters the NRM, it is not clear who owns your data as a survivor. It's things like that. I mean, if it's happening in places like that, it's things like that that make you sit down and question, okay, because as soon as you enter the system as a survivor, you are not given choices. Your life and the way it's, it moves is handed over and moved based on what is there, not based on what you want. So it's the illusion of freedom. Yeah, it is. It's really, I have said in many, in many ways, sometimes survivors just change their abusers. It's not that the abuse ends, it's just that the abusers change from the perpetrator to somebody else. What's the biggest barrier in your mind to solving the problem of trafficking? One, that right now trafficking is seen as a problem existing in a silo. For me, that's that's the biggest thing, is that uh, trafficking is not seen as something that exists on the background of everything else. There's been this push to sort of make it, sometimes I feel like it's like a unicorn crime. It's just there, you know, oh my God, it's so awful. I mean, how could someone possibly do that? And there's this idea that is completely outside everything else. You know, I'm not influenced by everything else. And I'm like, no, there's a, good, there's a good reason why the people who are being abused, I mean, there's a good reason why most of the sex trafficking victims in the U.S. are from the foster care system and are black, uh, are black children. There's a good reason. You know, there is a really, really good reason. There's a good reason why most of the women trafficked for forced labor in Kenya are young women who are either single mothers or breadwinners in their family. It's not a mystery, as we would like to make it seem. It's not a mystery. There's a good reason why, you know, organ trafficking, the, the little that is identified is identified in the areas that is identified. So making it seem like it's not part and parcel of what the society already is, for me, is the biggest impediment to solving it. Because if you looked at trafficking as just being part of everything else that is happening, we would not get as shocked as we do. And I actually think we'd be able to address some of the root causes, like like racism, like, you know, uh, gender-based violence, like, you know, inequality. We would get to that, but we are not getting to that. We are dealing with symptoms. So what are the steps, the first steps that we need to take? I think, like I'm saying, first step would be to to actually admit that one, it's not a unique problem, and it's that it's part of everything else that is happening, and then start addressing like root causes. Start addressing the fact that 
especially when it comes to trafficking that involves migration, we are not going to resolve that unless we stop being racist. We Countries deal with issues like social protection systems and all that. Unless we do that, we are constantly going to be dealing with, you know, the symptoms. You can't separate trafficking of children with, like, child protection. Child trafficking has to be put as part of the, you know, against the background of all other child protection issues for it to be fully solved. It's funny because when we come from a child protection perspective, there's such a push to make child protection a cross-cutting issue in every other development sector and to have that considered. I think that child protection should just be child protection and then everyone who's dealing with the issue should make it. But the child protection sector needs to be to give the foundation, right? Because then you don't have a foundation. If it's then made, there's no foundation. And I think everybody else needs to be able to constantly go back to the foundation. Is there someone you can think of that's been an influence on you in the practice of doing good? The first person that has been a huge influence in the practice of doing good is my mother. I grew up in a family where you are required to stand up for your values. You are required to defend them. You are required, like it wasn't something to think about. But my, but my mother was always the sort of person who made doing good so easy and being good so easy. And she, I mean, she doesn't have an award. She's not working for an NGO. She's not doing any of those things. I mean, it's just who she is. My, I used to laugh because I used to tell people that I can count the number of times as a child that I slept in my own bed. And this is because we constantly had people staying with us that my mother was taking care of. And she never felt like she never made it seem like, you know, it was such a big deal. It was just, this is what you do. You know, when people are in trouble, you share, you know, and would never expect anything, like expect absolutely nothing from them. You know, truly, you'll never hear her speak about the fact that I paid school fees for so-and-so and I fed so-and-so. She would never do it. That's where it has to come. That's, that, that for me was a really, really strong foundation in terms of how it's supposed to be done. It's just supposed to be who you are. And then everything else happens around you. This one's a, a philosophical question. What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? And when I say that, I mean something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we are thinking right now. I think for me, it's a combination of how much information we have and what we did with it. How much we just spoke about things and did nothing. Of, on, about every single issue I could possibly think about is how much we talk about it. Our inability to reimagine and imagine solutions for our problems, despite the knowledge that we have. I think that's, that, that, I think everyone will look back and just be like, oh, what's that? <laughs> Even when you go, when I go on social media and every, everywhere, you're constantly seeing the same information being regurgitated. We are just talking and talking. We are talking about racism. We are not thinking about what can we do. We are talking about trafficking. This is what it is. I'm just, we are just, cre we are in this state of just creating awareness about everything and doing nothing about it. So that for me frustrates me. And I've just been, I was telling someone the other day that we are at a point where we have forgotten what we are fighting for. And fighting has become the destination for our generation. You know, fighting, it's the fight that's thrilling to people rather than 
what is the new world that we're imagining? How does it look like? And how does this fight today, this fight, get me there? And a good example is like, even if you think about like the kind of awareness that let's say Black Lives Matter has gotten, the kind of awareness Me Too, we've lived in our generation where we've seen Me Too, we've seen Black Lives Matter, we've seen queer people, the LGBT community actually speak about all these things. But then when you come and now reflect, what actually have we won from that awareness. And a friend of mine said, oh, just consciousness is something for us to be grateful about. And I'm kind of not convinced. I'm not convinced because if think about if the past two months, we've been talking about Black Lives, almost the whole world has been talking about Black Lives Matters. Most people have not thought to actually ask, when we say Black Lives Matter, what do we mean and what is the solution? You know, what, is, what is actually the solution to making Black Lives Matter? And it has left so many people in a state of disillusionment where you, all of us are just feeling like there are no solutions. Sophie, if you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it right now, what would it be? to be empathetic. I think none of us is getting out of this alive. The least we can do is just make life easier for all of us. You know, that's the least. For me, I think if anything I want to be known for is empathy. If we approach the world with empathy, I think we would, would really, a lot of things would change. A lot of things, we wouldn't have to teach people a lot of things if they were just empathetic. Because you'd just be like, if this is not acceptable for me, it's not acceptable for another person. We wouldn't have to teach people activism. We wouldn't have to fight if people are just a little bit empathetic. Sophie, where's your favorite place on earth? Home. I think not in Kenya, but I come from a family where we discussed everything. And as a child, I hated it. I really, really hated that my dad and my mom created, like, because there was constant bickering in the house. And it was always like, before we decided something, it's like we went through like this long process of discussion. But and my dad always used to like saying that you need to understand that you need to constantly understand that the people in this room, the people that surround you here, love you. You don't have to earn their love. You don't have to fight for their love. And you consistently, when we argue, you have to think about the fact that they are coming from a place of love. And it took me years to actually appreciate the environment that my parents created in terms of just a group of people that I know have my back and accept me unconditionally. So when I say home, that's my definition of home. It doesn't have to be in Kenya. It's just me surrounded by these people who accept me unconditionally and love me and want the best for me. So it could be in uh, everywhere, but me surrounded by that, those people is my favorite place because that's when I'm the best version of myself. Yeah, wonderful. Are you reading any books at the moment? Yes, I'm reading, uh, I'm reading a group of essays by Zadie Smith called Changing My Mind. It's, it's a really good one. <laughs> And do you listen to podcasts? So I have two. So there's one called Cheeky Natives. Cheeky Natives is a South African one. They actually bring review books. So it's my way of knowing which book I'm going to read next. So they have a really interesting lineup. And then there's one by my friend called Brenda. It's called Otherwise. So they mainly focus on Kenyan political issues and different issues addressing Kenya. So those two are really great. Excellent. 
Well, Sophie, it's been so wonderful to have you on the podcast. And I want to thank you for sharing your story and your experience and your time. I think, you know, this issue is, as you say, so nuanced. It's not black and white. And I think there's a lot that people need to learn about that nuance so that we can respond appropriately. Thank you. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawurrung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. Do you want to learn more about doing better at doing good? I work with leaders from the business, nonprofit, and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical, and sustainable impact. I also offer coaching and mentoring to individuals and small business owners on how to integrate purpose and create positive impact. To find out more, follow me on Instagram at underscore Lee Matthews or check out my website at www.leematthews.com. Don't forget to subscribe and share.